so sad to see that go from this full sanctuary to this empty one. Uh, if you're like me, you were watching that thinking, I sure do miss those people. It's so good to see those faces. We were showing that earlier on the monitor in here, and our worship team said, oh, we wish we could be together. And uh, the reality is we just can't at this time. And, um, you know, I think we're through pretending that what we're doing here is our regular Sunday morning worship. I, I was on one of the Zoom calls this morning with one of our small groups, and I told them I'm I'm not shaving anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm, quit, I'm stopping pretending that I have it all together because um, we don't. And this is a, a hard time to exist as the church, as the body of Christ. I'm, I'm proud of our church and how we're figuring out ways to continue to worship and evangelize and disciple and fellowship and minister, but we're doing most of those things virtually now, and, and virtual isn't quite the real thing, is it? So we do long for that day when we can gather together, and until that time, we pray that the virus will be uh, eliminated soon, that our medical and health and science professionals will uh, have some discernment from the Lord and find a way to um, return us to normalcy in our every aspect of our lives. And, and we know that things won't be the same, and that's okay. God uses difficult times to move us where he wants us to be. We know that, and things won't go back to normal maybe ever, and that's okay. We embrace the change that the Lord has brought to us during this time. I do wanna share a word from the, uh, the, the, the word of God with you today, and we just pray that this message will encourage you and lift your heart to the Lord uh, during this season. We're gonna continue this series on the unstoppable church through the book of Acts, and through the month of May, we're gonna talk about how there's one body, one spirit, and the unity, that the power that the Holy Spirit brings to us as God's people. We're gonna see that in, in Acts 2, 3, and 4 throughout this month. And last week, we saw how the Holy Spirit showed up at Pentecost in power, like a, a rushing tornado, and filled the new believers, this little group of 120 and empowered them. It was the, the birth of the church. Fresh wind and fresh fire fell on God's people at Pentecost, and nothing was ever the same. From this point on, the church is going to be the vehicle of God's blessing to the world. It's going to be the conduit of the message of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear it, and that's the age that we're still in to this point. Today we're gonna to see what happens after the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost, immediately following that time. So we're right in the middle of the exciting, true story of the birth of the church. This band of believers had been waiting and praying patiently in Jerusalem like Jesus had told them to do when the Holy Spirit comes and now it's go time. It's time to take this thing live. And when the fire falls on them, they immediately begin speaking of the amazing things that God has done. But the, the thing is, is they're not saying these things in their own language. They're speaking in tongues. They're speaking in all kinds of foreign dialects. And they can't be contained in this upper room, so they spill out onto the streets. And as they're moving towards the temple, speaking these languages about the amazing things that God has done, Crowds start to form around them because they know something crazy is going on. Something strange is happening. They're hearing of the awesome acts of God in their own native tongues. Because during this Feast of Pentecost, believers from, or Jewish believers from all over the world had descended upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. 
And so some of these people who hear these believers speaking in tongues say, what's going on? What, what does this mean? They, they genuinely seek an answer to what, what is happening here. And then others just scoff and they say, they've had too much wine to drink. And they all make their way up to the center of Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, where Peter, oh, Peter, I love Peter. Peter stands up in the midst of this chaos in front of thousands and thousands of people to deliver his very first sermon. I don't really remember my first sermon. My wife might be able to tell you, but I, I know in college as a ministry student at Belmont University, we were given the opportunity. Some trusting churches just said, hey, send us a religion major to come preach at you know, Youth Sunday or some you know, Sunday morning service pulpit supply kind of thing. And they just sent us out and said, you go to this church, you go to this church. And so we went and we made the best of it. And I don't remember much of those uh, sermons, except I'm pretty sure they were not very good. And then I do remember my first wedding that I officiated, however. That was an interesting one. It was in my second year of seminary. I was probably 23 or 24. I didn't really have a clue of how to conduct a wedding, but I asked for some advice from my dad and some other ministers, and I kind of made some notes, and you know, it went pretty well. I was so nervous. There were 300 plus people in attendance. It was at a big Methodist church in Knoxville, and we got through it okay. And I was thinking, hey, this isn't so hard. I can do this. And at the reception, I, I found the bride, and I said, hey, that was, that was great. She said, yeah, you did a great job. And I was feeling pretty good. And then I remembered I was supposed to sign the, the marriage license as the efficient to mail it into the state so that the wedding would actually be legitimate. And I said, oh, do you have the license I'm supposed to sign? And a look of horror came over her face because she realized that she didn't bring it. And her brother ended up had thrown it in the trash a few days ago. Long story short, the brother drove home uh, 30 minutes away from the reception, dug through the bins, found the coffee-stained coffee marriage license, brought it to the reception just a few minutes before the married couple was supposed to leave. I signed it. We got it mailed in. Uh, it was almost a disaster, but it, you know, it worked out by God's grace and for his glory. When Peter stands up to give his first sermon, it's, it's nothing like that. It's a complete home run. Uh, something amazing happens when Peter stands up to give his message why can this guy who's a fisherman from Galilee, very uneducated, probably flunked out of Hebrew school because he was apprenticed to his father as a fisherman by this point, how could he stand up and, and give this eloquent sermon with, with great knowledge? How could that be possible? Well, it's because something had changed. He was now full of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, he was able to give one of the greatest sermons of all time. What was it about this sermon that was so great? Before we read it, let me just give you a little preview. I wanna show you five things that made this sermon so amazing. The first thing is it was simple. Peter gets right to the point. He just addresses the crowd's question, what does this mean? He says, well, I'll tell you what it means. And he explains exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit had come just as scripture had promised. And then Peter moved on to talk about Jesus, kept it simple. And then at the end, he, he issues a, an invitation, short and sweet, simple sermon. 
I know a lot of you are thinking, hey, Pastor Nathan, you could probably learn a lot from that. And yes, you're right, I'm working on it, okay? I'm, I'm still learning. The second thing is it was scriptural. It was full of scripture. His message was just expositing what God's word had already said. Peter's message isn't something he's just making up, like, hey, here's some ideas I have. He's just going straight from the word of God itself. Look at verse 16 where he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel back in the Hebrew scriptures. Then look at verse 25. David says concerning him, the Messiah, he's quoting from Psalm uh, 16 and Psalm 110. He's expositing God's word. And the spirit is bringing to Peter's mind all these scriptures that he may have learned as a young child in Hebrew school or may have heard his dad read at home, but he wasn't a scholar, but all of a sudden he's quoting and referencing all this scripture because the Holy Spirit is bringing it to his mind. Any great sermon clearly displays the glory of God as revealed in scripture, God's written revelation of himself to us. Third, the third reason why it was a great sermon is because it was set on Christ. Christ was the whole center of the whole message. It was all based on Christ. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs and that God did through him in your midst. Go to the next verse, verse 23. This Jesus, this one that I'm talking about, Jesus of Nazareth, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Then verse 36. God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, that's, that's the crux of this whole message. That's his boom, that's his final point and his main point, that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. It was also a great sermon because it was so convicting. Look at verse uh, 37. When they heard these things, that Jesus is the Christ, they were cut to the heart. You know, a great sermon makes us rethink things. It, it, it cuts us bare. It lays bare our emotions. It makes us rethink important things, things that shape our entire lives. A great sermon should lead us to confess and to repent and to change, ultimately, our entire lives. Fifth and finally, it was a, a great sermon because it was sensible. You know, Peter's not being fancy and reinventing the wheel here. He's being practical and pragmatic in how he's addressing the questions. And I like that Peter's not a heavy-handed preacher. I think he is starting with some levity, which I appreciate. He's not angry. He's not yelling at the crowd. He's not calling uh, names. In, in verse 13, we saw that the, the scoffers and the mockers said, they've had too much wine. But look at verse 14. Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He's basically saying, come on, guys, it's early in the morning. These guys haven't been drinking. You guys settle down. Let me explain to you what is happening. That's what he goes on to do. He answers the question, what does this mean that they asked back in verse 12? And then he ends his sermon with answering the question, what shall we do in verse 37? He gives them a clear application to follow. So what does it mean that the believers are suddenly 
speaking in these foreign tongues, what is really going on? Peter explains what had happened by using scripture. Look at verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He's basically saying, haven't you guys read the Bible? Don't you know what Joel said? It's all right there. And then in verse 17 to 21, Peter quotes Joel 2, 28 to 32, <coughs> excuse me, which describes this very age that we're living in now, the church age, the messianic age. We get to live on this side of the cross and everything's different now. Look at verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. He's basically saying that all these things that are gonna come to pass because of the Holy Spirit, prophecies, dreams, visions, we're gonna see all those things in the book of Acts. They all happen, they all come to pass. And, and know that the Spirit didn't fall on all flesh right there. There were only 120 believers, but that little group was the first fruits of what would become billions and billions of people who would have the fire of the Holy Spirit fall on them. And one day is coming when fire will fall on all flesh. And that's the end of the church age. That's what he's talking about in verse 19. Go back to verse 19. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the great day of the Lord when Christ burst back into our world with a, a billion angels swirling behind him, uh, ready to say, enough, we're gonna make all things new once again. And it sounds ominous, right? You got darkness, you got blood, you got fire, you got smoke. It sounds like a terrifying scene, but look at that verse 21 again. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It, this is not an age of law and trying to have it all together and trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. It's an age of grace. Clearly, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. This is uh, not a time where we're defined by our ability to carry out the law or to follow the rules. It's a time that's defined by God's grace and goodness where all we need to admit is that we need rescuing. I love that, that bridge and just as I am, I never heard that before, but how it said I'm empty and I'm broken and I need rescue. That's, that's, that's the, the, the basis and the foundation for salvation by grace through faith alone. So it's not cheap grace, we need to remember that. It, it costs more than we could ever imagine, but that price has been paid indeed, and we could never pay it back. But God, all he expects of us is to surrender completely and to allow him to come and fill us. And now that Peter has explained what it means that the spirit has come, now he moves on to his main point about Jesus Christ, the Lord, and Messiah. Peter's giving us this incredible explanation of the story of Jesus. Look at how he starts with these, these points. He, in verse 22, he starts with the incarnation of Christ. 
He talks about his incarnation. Hear these words. Verse 22 says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Jesus was a man. Uh, not, he was fully human. He was fully God, but he was fully incarnate as a man, attested to you. That's the first step, God in the flesh. That was a revolutionary idea for these Jewish believers. And then he moves on to the second point, the crucifixion. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God in the flesh did die. He actually stopped breathing. His heart stopped. God incarnate was murdered in a brutal way. We need to understand the importance of that. It was all part of the plan. Redeeming this fallen and, and broken world back unto God required an, a, an incredible arrangement where God's perfect love and his perfect justice could both meet. And that was what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. At the cross, God's love and justice kiss in perfect unity. It's an amazing thing that God forged salvation for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 24, Peter speaks of the resurrection. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that. Death could not hold him down. And the resurrection of, of Christ, the Messiah, changes everything. That was the linchpin in the whole gospel story. It makes sense of all those messianic passages in the Psalms that nobody understood until now. In verse 25, Peter starts quoting from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, where David, the, the great king and the great prophet of Jerusalem, speaks of one whom the grave could not contain. But everyone knew that this couldn't be about David because David's body was rotting in a tomb just south of Jerusalem near Siloam. Everyone knew that David's bones were buried there and they were still there. So this psalm couldn't possibly be about David. It was about the Messiah. Look at verse 29. Brothers and sisters, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Mashiach, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We've seen it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It was all starting to make sense now to Peter and to the people there in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. All the pieces are starting to fall into place because of the Holy Spirit. The next psalm that, that Peter quotes from to to explain in light of the Messiah is Psalm 110. Quoted here in verse 34 and verse 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
They knew this was about the Messiah, but again, some people thought this was about David, but Peter says this can't be about David because he didn't ascend. Only one has risen and ascended, and his name is Jesus Christ. So you see the full story of Jesus's life, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. All four of those elements of Christ's life are explained clearly here in Peter's message. He therefore concludes in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was a bold claim to say that Jesus was Lord. To the Gentiles who were hearing these words, they would be confronted with the reality that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. You know, in, in the Roman times, they made every conquered people confess that Caesar is master and Lord. And for Peter to say, no, Jesus is Lord, was a bold claim. To the Jewish hearers who heard this claim that Jesus is the Christ, that was a term reserved for the long-awaited Messiah who had been promised to come one day and rescue God's people because no matter how many lambs they slayed, how many sacrifices they offered on the altar, it was never enough to put them right with God forever. They needed a Messiah to do that for them. So why was this sermon so great? What was the, the key to Peter's powerful witness? Remember Acts 1.8, this is about being witnesses to Christ in the world. What makes us a, a powerful witness? Maybe you feel like I'm not really a, a light for Christ. I, I'm not really a strong witness for Christ. Let me show you three keys to, to the, being a powerful witness. In this passage, both Peter and his sermon were all full of Christ, they were full of scripture, and they were full of the Holy Spirit. Both the, the message and the speaker were full of Christ, they were full of scripture, and they were full of the Holy Spirit. The same thing's true for us. If, you were, if we're gonna be a powerful witness, we must be filled with Christ, filled with scripture, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And the reality is, you know, Peter, he had been incredibly empty. Remember, just seven weeks before this, Peter had had his world come crumbling down where after the Last Supper, the, the man that he had left everything behind in order to follow and to pledge his life to had been betrayed and arrested. And, and as he was being tried, Peter's just standing there warming himself by the fire outside of, of Herod's palace. And someone says, oh, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, me? No way, I never even knew the guy. Three times he denies Jesus, his Lord. And it wasn't until that, that, that time on the beach when the risen Christ uh, appeared to Peter and to the disciples and over a charcoal breakfast of fish, he restored Peter back. But until that time, Peter was broken and empty, having abandoned and betrayed everything that he said he was living for. Peter was completely empty the truth is that we cannot be filled with Christ. We cannot be filled with scripture and we cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit until we are empty of everything else. I think one of my favorite professors in seminary 
was a guy named Dr. Lyle Dorsett. He was a, a leading C.S. Lewis scholar. He was an evangelism professor. He uh, had an incredible life ordained as an Anglican priest. He was so gracious and kind. His wife and him always hosted all of us in their home for cookies and for prayer and for worship. And um, He was always quick to tell us the story, though, of how he woke up one morning on the floorboard of his car when he was a young man, surrounded by bottles of booze and not remembering anything that had happened for the last several days. He hit rock bottom and he was empty of everything else and he realized only a savior could save him because he could not save himself. If we're going to empty ourselves, we've got to realize that we are at rock bottom and we are desperate without Christ. I pray it doesn't take you uh, waking up on the floor of your car to realize that. Peter boldly told Israel about the reality of their spiritual bankruptcy, that they were empty. No matter how good they thought they were, no matter how much they believed that they had it all together, no matter what good little Jews they were, they actually brought nothing to the table spiritually. They were poor in spirit, whether they admitted it or not. So when they realize this, they, they cry out in desperation in verse 37, brothers, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. Their emptiness had now made way for their fullness. So Peter answers their questions, and he gives them an opportunity to respond in, in verse 38. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing that there's still hope, even for the worst offenders out there, those who put Christ to death, that he offers them this grace in this moment. Repentance, a change of heart, a spiritual 180 is what's essential for those who had failed to recognize their God who was sent to them in the flesh. And it's essential for us today as well to repent, to, to be baptized as an outward symbol of an inward reality of what's happened to us. If we will freely admit our spiritual bankruptcy, that we bring nothing to the table, and if we will fully trust that Jesus can do what he says he can do to rescue us from our sins, then we will be saved. What an incredible promise. And, and this promise isn't just for people in Bible times. This promise isn't just for Jewish people. This promise is for us today. Look at verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Maybe today you're far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What a beautiful promise. And many, uh, with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Even in the midst of this generation that we live in today, the promise of hope is still there. The key is how we receive this great message of the gospel that we've heard today. Do we roll our eyes and say, yeah, you know, preacher, we've heard all that stuff before, or do we fall to our knees in worship and say, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Every minute, I need you. I bring nothing to the, the table of my own righteousness. All my good works are like filthy rags. 
before you. I'm empty on my own, and I need you to come and fill me with your grace and with your truth and power. And I repent of my sin. I turn to you today, O God, my Lord and my Savior. Is Jesus truly the Lord of your heart and of your life today? You know, for many people in our world, Jesus is just one more good thing that they add to their life. I play tennis, I read books, I love dogs, and I love Jesus. It's hard for most of us to to get to that point of desperation, but maybe in a pandemic, we're starting to feel that. That desperation, emptiness, like the people in Jerusalem felt when they heard this sermon. When was the last time that you were cut to the heart? You know, sometimes heart surgery is the only way to be healed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this beautiful picture of the gospel in your word, that you haven't left us here, you haven't abandoned us to our own uh, ability to be good and to be right before you, but that you have sent Jesus to pay the price that we could never have paid on our own, that the spotless lamb has given us his righteousness while he has taken all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt upon himself. God, for those of us who are already believers, remind us of this gospel truth and may it inspire us to gospel sanity. May we remember that we don't need to keep spinning our wheels to be good before you, that you've already paid that price. And for those who aren't believers, oh Lord, I pray that they would be cut to the heart, that they would be open and vulnerable before you in this time as they receive your grace and goodness into their lives, maybe for the very first time. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. If you're watching this today and you've never given your life to Christ, I encourage you, call the number 615-297-5303. Talk to someone today. Don't delay. There's no better time to surrender all to Jesus Christ. Let's sing.